Bill Walton has lived the American dream. From army service at the Pentagon to start his career to successful manager of billions of dollars, filmmaker, philanthropist, and conservative leader, Bill has proven time and again that hard work and excellence pay off when the free market system is in place. Bill now hosts The Bill Walton Show, which focuses on in-depth conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, and thinkers who offer deep insights into money, culture, and politics. He also chairs the Resolute Protector Foundation, a 501c3 media company that creates and produces original educational and entertainment content. Welcome, Bill, to the Economic War Room. Hey, Kevin, good to see you. I love your show. You have great guests. It's always in-depth conversations. It's not this rapid-fire talking head, complain about what's wrong today. Um, so tell us about the Bill Walton Show. Well, I think that people can learn a lot more from an in-depth conversation with somebody who's really smart on a subject and maybe studied or lived it for years, and uh, much more so than reading a book. I've, I've found often in my investment business that if I could sit and talk with the entrepreneur for an hour, that I'd learned a lot more in that hour than I did spending hundreds of hours in a library on the internet studying something. And I think we all learn that way. And so I've, I've focused on conversations among uh, smart people to try to get at the essence of, uh, of the issues. Well, it paid off. You had amazing results with your investment firms. Um, tell us a little bit about the background. What did you invest in? Private equity in a lot of cases. But, but what was your investment secret? Well, I think <laughs> my investments, that's a, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> I, will, I will try to boil it down. You know, I think one of the things, obviously, is when I, particularly when I was running Allied Capital, we were in the business of private equity and small business lending and commercial real estate lending and some venture capital. We were really across the board. And, and one of the keys was to get a, an investment team of people who are extremely smart and knew specific things about, uh, about the areas we were investing in. So I guess it, it starts surround, by surrounding yourself with the right people. Uh, and then I think you also need to have a, uh, a very clear view about what you know and what you don't know. And in our case, Allied Capital, we like to invest in businesses, maybe one in 100, one in 500 businesses that we thought had a, uh, uh, a you know very clear dominant market share and high returns on capital and all that. And it, it worked really well. I, I think for any investors out there, you've got to recognize if you're looking at 100 companies, probably 90 of them aren't that investable. So you got to focus on the good ones. You know, that sounds a little bit like a Warren Buffett approach or even a John Templeton. I used to work for John Templeton, their approach. Are the great investors know exactly how to find the right investments. Well, I have a Warren Buffett story. I was telling, we got into the commercial real estate. One of the cycles, it was all, it was in ashes. And uh, we came in and started picking up uh, assets that we thought were undervalued. And we're at an investor conference and I'm explaining how we're uh, going after uh, businesses. And I quote Warren Buffett and I said, you know, we try to be uh, um, um, cautious when other people are greedy, but greedy when other people are afraid. And this old guy sitting in the front row said to me, yeah, but you're not Warren Buffett. <laughs> anyway, it worked out really well for us. I had a I had some very we, we we ended up doing well in real estate buying at the at, at, at the bottom of the cycle and, and hopefully selling near the top. Yeah. Well, all of this is predicated, though, on a free market economy 
which makes yeah. these investment opportunities work. You get outside of the free market and it's all cronyism. It's all, you know, who do you know and are, are you in, in control and the political things. Tell us about how we've had a great free market economy and where we're going off the rails today. And I think we are, aren't we? Well, one of the things, you know, I, when I merged my company uh, after the after the aftermath of the meltdown in 2008-2009, uh, merged it successfully with Ares Capital. One of the one of the things that I, I was interested in was was understanding more about the policies that made for successful businesses and what made America, um, you know, highly productive and and a successful place to invest in. And, you know, I think the conditions I saw were what I saw when I was running a public company. The regulatory state has grown rapidly. We're seeing all sorts of uh, new agencies prop up. Old agencies like the EPA have increased and extended their mandates. And so if you're running a company or if you want to build something, it takes forever just to get the permitting to do it. So there's a a regulatory uh, administrative state that we've got to recognize with. And then I think the other big, one other big thing, there are many of them that we need to figure out is that what the Federal Reserve has done with zero interest rates and and QE and all the sorts of uh, leveraging up that not only federal bank is, federal Reserve Bank has done, but all the other central banks, they've, they've made the, the macro environment almost investable. With rates where they were, you couldn't really tell where to allocate capital. So we got to get the noise of the uh, the monetary people out of the market. Um, I've got some simple ideas to do that. Uh, if Joe Biden wants to call me, I'll be glad to to, to, to uh, clue him in. <laughs> yeah, well, you've, you've, you've nailed two of them. I, I would throw the third one in is when Wall Street stops looking for return on investment and starts demanding that you invest to achieve social goals like ESG and That's so huge. forth. So how is, it, how is it huge? What's the impact? Well, if, you know, we're talking about ESG, which is environmental social governments. Environmental means we should be mindful of the climate before we invest. Well, in the first place, you can argue, I think, persuasively that the climate really is not changing in a way that humans can't adapt to it. I mean, the greatest asset in the world is human ingenuity, and we've always adapted to changing uh, climate situations and always will. But anyway, let's let's set that aside. But the environmental... Um, would have us get stop investing in uh, oil and gas and, and coal and and even have us stop investing in nuclear, which are all highly reliable sources of energy and invest instead in wind and solar, uh, which are highly unreliable and highly uneconomic. You can't make wind and solar work without massive government subsidies. And so if you start thinking about that as an agenda, you're already are you already allocating capital um, Horribly, and um, you know, we we I think fortunately, a lot of the ESG, I think, is a bull market phenomenon. It's one thing when the Dow and the S and P's at an all time high, but when it's down 20, 30 percent, investors start asking hard questions about: Are you putting your dollars where um, or your capital where they'll get the highest returns? Maybe we'll see some sanity return because uh, with uh, lower stock prices, uh, investors are not going to allow CEOs to uh, misdeploy capital. Yeah. We're going to need to take a break. When we come back, though, I want to dive into some of the things you would tell President Biden. What can we do to get America back on the right track economically, culturally, or whatever? Bill, we were talking about your career, and it's just been remarkable. It's the American dream lived out. 
Uh, but then we talked about some of the current elements in the environment, whether it's ESG or the administrative state, the political overhang to the free market system. I mean, you use the term allocation of capital multiple times, and that references what's the best way to allocate your investment capital uh, to get the best return both for the individual and for society. And when you start throwing in these other factors, you misallocate capital, whether it's zero interest rates or whatever. So what are your solutions? What would you do to fix the problem that we're facing? Well, if I'm advising Joe Biden, the first thing I'd say is, Joe, knock out the war on oil and gas and fossil fuels and coal and and also start adding in some healthy investment in nuclear, which is a long-term sustainable clean energy. Uh, we have to remember that the world's been lifted out of poverty in the last 150, 200 years because of the, at least 150 years, because of the oil and gas revolution. Even the internal combustion engine has made the world um, a vastly more wealthy place. And of course, developing economies also depend on it. And so when we say we're going to go to wind and solar, we're basically saying, let's invest in 12th century technology. That's not a good way to go. Mm. So you deal with the energy issue first, and also that helps us with our national security because then we become energy independent. One of the byproducts of wind and solar is most of the equipment that, that provides wind and solar energy comes from China. Uh, and so, and so it's uh, you know we can get into a long discussion about about that. I think that the next thing you need to talk about is our money, and it's a, it's I sound like an old time Republican, but even Republicans have lost the the mantra. We need to stop spending insane amounts of money. Um, it's a massive misallocation of capital. Government does not know where to invest, um, and and worse, a lot of it's going to to subsidize wealthy investors. If you look at one of the big bills, there's almost a trillion dollars in uh, subsidies that go to wealthy investors for uh, um, climate infrastructure. And, and they want to do things like build massive power lines from uh, solar fields, wind fields out in the middle of nowhere to get it down to Los Angeles. Well, that's hundreds of billions of dollars that need not be spent if we relied on uh, on oil and gas. So. Um, and then you mentioned the regulatory state. I mean, there's a whole government approach now. Every single agency in government is really focused more on um, uh, a social justice agenda and, and focused on climate. If we can get um, maybe the Department of Education to pick an example to get out of that, just maybe focus on reading, writing, and arithmetic, we do a lot of good. Um, it, it, it's a long list, Kevin, but I think... Uh, there, there are a few ease. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit, given how badly Joe has mismanaged this. You know, and you make that point on, on education. If we would be training engineers and scientists, uh, it, it, it would make a huge difference. And then the, the other, the other thing is the debt. As you mentioned, we have 32 trillion dollars in debt. Last I looked, we've spent about 30 trillion dollars in the war on poverty that uh, Johnson brought out. So almost all of our debt, and yet the war on poverty hasn't had any victory. In fact, poverty is as challenging now as it was in the 1960s when he brought this whole wealth transfer um, mechanism in place. Well, the war on poverty, I, am, I shouldn't laugh, has been just a, a catastrophic failure. And it not only failed economically to lift people out of, out of what they define as poverty, uh, but the social costs have been enormous. It basically destroyed the black family. You know, I had Robert Woodson on my show, and he points out that in 1959, 1960, 
the marriage rate among the black community was higher than that among the white community. And they had thousands of thousands and thousands of thriving businesses and churches, and they were doing just fine. And along came Lyndon Johnson and all the all the disincentives they created to uh, make the welfare state. And and look what's happened to our cities now, not only cities, but rural, rural white America as well. Yeah, well, and he actually achieved his objective, though, which wasn't to end poverty. It was to get the African-American community voting Democrat reliably and repeatedly, which was quite the, the, the accomplishment for a politician, given the fact that uh, the Republicans led the civil rights movements, the Republicans were the ones with Lincoln to end slavery. You know, there, there were very few black Democrats in the 1950s until the war on poverty took place. Yeah, I, I forget I'm talking to a guy who wrote the book According to Plan. <laughs> A lot of this was on purpose to promote a progressive liberal agenda and increase their power and, 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 and in the end, decreasing ours. Yeah, well, you make the point. I've got a friend who says when he was growing up, when the welfare people would come by the house, they moved all of daddy's stuff to the attic and daddy went and lived somewhere else because the family could get paid more money without a father in the home. He said that's a very stark yeah. difference and he can mark the date. Because before that, his mom used to say to him, hey, son, uh, you don't play with them. You can be friends with them, but don't ever go to their house because they, they haven't got a daddy in their home. So it's an unsafe environment. To a few years later with the public policy change, all of the families in this neighborhood lacked daddies or the ones that had the father in the home, they left the home to appear like they didn't have a father. We were paying families to not have a father in the home. Well, you mentioned my story at the outset. I mean, my basic agenda in doing this in the show and talking with you is I'd, I'd like to restore an America that we grew up in, uh, which involved uh, intact uh, nuclear families with kids living in a home with the father and a, you know, schools that were controlled by the local community, local parents, uh, you know, the basics of you know, freedom of, of religion, Christianity, which was at the core of uh, the American idea. Um, you know, the, the solution is pretty simple. We've seen it. Uh, we've seen it in America. We just need to put the take take the bad stuff out of the equation and bring the good stuff back. Yeah. And, and, and to your point, uh, if we would give opportunity, we'd end poverty. The ending yeah. of poverty is free market capitalism using the available energy resources and, and granting opportunity wherever possible. And one more point, I just saw uh, recently that fusion, nuclear fusion, may be a real source of energy going forward, and yet the yeah. Green Movement wants to oppose it. Well, you have to guess, you have to wonder about the Green Movement's true agenda. I, I, I'm in the skeptical camp about whether it's really about climate and it's more about control. And, you know, their notion, and, and World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab has said this, they want to they want a global reset, and part of the global reset is to make people happy in their small apartments and no car, and uh, and really, I guess, dependent on Klaus Schwab's uh, social programs. Um, it, the climate may not be agenda. It, the climate may not be the actual agenda. It's something much darker. No, I think you're right. It, it is the elites grabbing power, and we end up as serfs on their plantation. And I think that's, you know, Karl Marx said it, and I think Klaus Schwab is living it out. Well, we're going to need to take another break. Bill, when we come back, I'd like to talk to, with you about the investment climate. Where would you put money today? 
We're talking with Bill Walton, who's had a phenomenal investing career. He's a conservative stalwart. He's a leader in so many different areas, media, uh, investing, politics, and so forth. But I want to wrap up, Bill. In today's investing environment, if you were just starting out, middle of your career, or, or approaching retirement, those three choices, where would you put money? Where would you be investing today? Well, the first place I'd put money is I'd, if, if, I'm, if I'm younger, maybe in the middle, mid-career, I'd, I'd keep investing in, your, in myself. And by that, I mean beginning to take the money, to take the classes, learn the skills, develop your, your abilities so that you're extremely valuable to other people, um, whether it's leadership or finance or engineering or any of the other things you need. The more, the more in your head... Um, the better you are. The, the Jewish people, when they were being thrown out of uh, Europe or driven out of Europe because of the Holocaust in World War II, there was a saying, the only wealth that you can really count on is uh, what you can put in a toothpaste tube, or more importantly, what you can put in your head. Oh. And so I would, I would think in terms of investing in yourself, investing in your family, and making sure you've got the personal resources to thrive. But but turning attention to your money, um, I think you've got to you've got to invest in what you know. Um, we've seen with cryptocurrency, it, and we saw it before with the dot coms, and we've seen so many different cycles where people thought something was a sure thing to double every 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 month, and it never does. It it, it ends up much like we've seen with cryptocurrency. So you don't, and, and nobody understands it. So so I would stay away from things like that and. And, you know, you want to be cautious about this, but I still think for the average person investing in, in large multinational companies that pay a good dividend and have a good balance sheet and have been here for a while and are likely to be around for a while is still the right investment strategy. I mean, Kevin, you and I are quite concerned with their woke social philosophies, but nevertheless, you look at most of them, they've got high return on capital, good market share, and they're likely to be around. And also, if you get companies that pay a cash dividend, um, that's a very good thing indeed. But now, you really need to think about the intertwining relationship some of these companies may have with China. And so you got to do a little bit of extra bit, um, extra bit of due diligence to make sure that the companies that you uh, put your money in are not, uh, are not doing things you don't like, like, uh, like maybe Nike's doing or even Apple's doing in, uh, in China. Yeah, no, that's a great point. That's why we train financial advisors at Liberty University to help clients to avoid those, uh, those sorts of problems. But let's talk interest rates. For example, when I started my investing career, which was 1982, I worked for my father. And uh, I, I, at that point in my career, I was just about to graduate college. Well, from 1982 through the present, the past 40 years, we've seen a declining interest rate environment. I remember how high rates were when I started, and I remember people thinking, oh, no, it's going to be like this forever. And, of course, it wasn't, and we've seen 40 years of declining rates. Only recently have we seen rates starting to rise. What impact is the interest rate environment going to have for investors? Well, the, the good news, I, I'm not sure there is good news. I mean, you're right. We, we've been in a wonderful environment where, you know, when I started as a banker in the late 70s, you know, prime rate rose eventually at almost 20%. I think it may be even higher than that. And, but we were asking borrowers to pay that back uh, 
in, in interest costs, yet the borrowers are also looking at inflation of 10, 12, 15%. And so they, they were able to raise prices and it sort of worked, but not really. Um, I fear we're entering into that uh, uh, world now. Um, I think the place to keep your money is not in cash particularly. I think you've got to be a little bit aggressive about being in something that does pay a, a decent return. Inflation-adjusted treasuries are one, are one safe place to hide. Although I, I'm talking with you, Kevin, and we're talking about $32 trillion of American debt and the, uh, the dollar's fallen about 8% in the last, uh, uh, last couple of months. And so even, um, even the financial excess, which we seem to be avoiding, is caught up with America. Um, I, you know, again, I get back to, you know, I, I still sort of like the, uh, the large, I sort of still like equities. I think companies that are, have a real business and providing a real service and have high return on capital and, and my favorite pay a cash dividend, I think it's probably a good place to hide in a rising interest rate environment because I think you'll also see these companies are raising their dividends uh, quarter after quarter, most of them, and that, that's one of the ways to, uh, to hedge inflation. Yeah. Well, as we're entering a new year, 2023, we had a rough year in 2022. Do you have any insights? Where do you think the economy is going to head? You know the political situation. We had a little bit of a change at the midterms that the House was taken back by the Republicans. But do you have any forecasts or thoughts for 2023? Um, well, I can't really give <laughs> forecasts or thoughts. I'm not among the optimistic crew. I think there's a lot of forces at work. We've, you know, we, with the sanctions, with what's happened in Ukraine and Russia, the sanctions and, you know, the, the, the sabotage of Nord Stream uh, pipeline, I think Russia is going to, Russia and, and Europe is going to suffer a very, very tough winter. It's going to be cold and dark because their energy costs are going through the roof. In England, one estimate, it could be up 10 times from where it was last year. And then that's going to have a chilling effect on the economy. China is also in a fairly severe recession, a lot of it self-inflicted. I mean, this zero COVID, COVID, zero COVID lockdown that they've engaged in has had a, has a crushing effect. They've also cracked down on their tech companies. Uh, you're seeing in China, you're seeing wealthy families setting up private offices in Singapore to get away from the Chinese authorities and, and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so the 2023 is going to be a, a year where the wind's not at our back, and I think you're going to have to pick. If, if you've got it, if you've got an investment portfolio, you're going to have to seek out companies that you think will thrive in that environment, or at least survive. You know, my philosophy back when I was in the active in the investing business is you can't really predict the macro economy. You can only predict. The, you know, you can only really understand which companies might do well or be okay in that environment. And if you put your money there, I think you see yourself through uh, through what's likely to be a tough year. Yeah, no, stock picker's environment. Well, I want to close with a quote that I read on your website. It says, but there are also plenty of reasons for hope. We know what works, what's moral, and what makes people happy. The principles of limited government, faith, free enterprise, freedom of speech, opportunity, human agency, robust civil society, the rule of law, and simple virtues that have proved themselves over the centuries. Bill, you're an inspiration. I'm so glad to call you friend, and I thank you so much for being in the economic war room. 
Kevin, great talking with you, and I admire your show, and uh, let's keep going. Sure. What's the best way people can follow you? Is it BillWaltonShow.com? It's the BillWaltonShow.com. TheBillWaltonShow.com. And I'm on YouTube and Rumble and, and CPAC now. And uh, also we've started a Substack uh, presence, which has been uh, growing robustly. And so if, interestingly, I'm, I, my search engine now shows the show when I type in the Bill Walton show and, instead of the basketball player. That's great. All right, we're going to summarize all of our conversation, our free economic battle plan. Our viewers can get that at economicwarroom.com. Remember, what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space. This is Kevin Freeman from the Economic War Room.